We're saying the Lord's Prayer. Um, the disciples came to Christ and said, Lord, teach us to pray. And he says, well, pray like this, our Father who art in heaven, our Father, Abba, Father, who art in heaven, all-powerful. And as you see, the goodness of Abba, Father, and the mercy of Abba, Father, and, and the embrace of Abba, Father, you pray this, hallowed be your name. God, you get the honor, you get the glory. Thy kingdom come. So work in us by your word and spirit that we are more and more conformed to you, that the church is guarded and increased, that Satan's kingdom is overturned, and that we are renewed in our minds. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So these first three petitions are glorious and sweeping and grandiose. And then we come to the fourth petition, and really there seems to be a, a fall off. Very mundane. Give us this day our daily bread. Give us this day our daily bread. I'm going to suggest three reasons, four reasons why we should understand that and why the Lord taught us to pray that. The first is this. He wants us to understand that we are totally dependent upon the living God for everything that we get. Our next breath. Our daily bread. The very basic things of life. Someone told me this week, they thought about life, that, that every relationship, every marriage, every organization, every group is held together with a very thin ligament of grace. And we forget how desperately we need the grace of God. Jesus says, without me, you can do nothing, spiritually speaking. So, so we give us this day our daily bread. In the Old Testament book of Hosea, God's judgment is coming upon his people, and he tells them why it's coming. In chapter 13 of Hosea, verse 6, he says this, when I fed them, they became satisfied, and when they became satisfied, they became proud, and then they forgot me. See, fed, satisfied, proud, forgot. We forget so easily. Psalm 127, unless the Lord builds the house, they labor in vain who build it. Unless the Lord guards the city, the watchman will stay awake in vain. It is in vain that you rise up early and give yourself to anxious toil, for the Lord gives to his beloved sleep. We desperately need the grace of God. So seven years ago, six years ago, there was a leader who is now causing incredible turmoil named Vladimir Putin as he continues to gobble up little chunks of the Ukraine. And Vladimir Putin, seven years ago, who was trained by the KGB, which gave me pause, had a photo shoot of himself chopping wood and riding a horse without a shirt on. Not simultaneously, but, you know, different times. And, and you know, He's a middle-aged guy. He's, he's in shape, but he's not muscle and fitness. You know, he's, I, I thought, this is really weird. And in any middle-aged guy that has a photo op that talks about Mother Russia without his shirt on is a dangerous person. Seriously. If he ever has power, it's dangerous because it shows incredible arrogance. There's a man called Nebuchadnezzar in the Old Testament. He was a great king. He was the king of Babylon. Babylon was the greatest power in the world. They destroyed Israel. He took the the leaders of Judah into captivity, called the Babylonian captivity. Among them was a guy named Daniel. 
Daniel had the ability given by God to interpret dreams. Nebuchadnezzar found out about that. He had a dream. He says, I had a dream that, that there was a large, beautiful, flourishing tree where all the birds of the air nested in its branches and the animals found shelter under its shade. Daniel, what does that mean? And Daniel says, oh, great king, hear me. You're that tree. And then he went on and said, in that dream, I dreamed that the tree was chopped down. What does that mean, Daniel? He says, oh, great king, it means that you're about to experience the judgment of God unless you repent and trust God and honor him. And if you do that, maybe your dream won't come true. The Bible says 12 months later, see, Nebuchadnezzar was walking around Babylon. He says, look at this great city that I have built with my own industry and power. And immediately the judgment of God fell upon him. And for seven years, he lived like a wild animal until he gave glory to God. Now, I call that the Nebuchadnezzar effect. Be very careful. In one of the most well-known stories in the New, New Testament, Jesus says, two men went up to pray. It's a story. I'm going to tell you an illustration, he said. Parable. One was a Pharisee representing the religious establishment. Pharisees believed that through self-effort and work, they could make themselves right with God. And so they were very, very demanding, very, very observant. The other guy that went to pray was a tax collector, a tax collector being someone who took in money for the occupational forces, not a very popular guy. The Pharisee, Jesus says, goes to the temple, and he prayed Standing up, and he said this five times. He said, I, I thank you, God, that I am not like other men. I'm not an extortioner. I'm not an adulterer. I'm not like this dirty, rotten tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give a tenth of all that I get to the Lord. I do this. I do that. The tax collector sat or in the corner of the temple, didn't even lift up his eyes to heaven. And the tax collector said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And then Jesus gave the punchline that startled everybody. He says, the tax collector went home justified and right with God, not the Pharisee. Beware of the Nebuchadnezzar effect. This man, Beethoven, died in 1830. Beethoven, his biographers tell us, was... Uh, supported by a benefactor who was a wealthy prince. And Beethoven had an apartment in this wealthy prince's estate. And one day they had an argument or disagreement. Beethoven went upstairs and was throwing things and turning over bookshelves. And the prince went up to his room and he said, what's going on, Beethoven? Why are you acting this way? And Beethoven said this, prince, you are what you are by accident of birth. What I am I am by myself. There are and will be thousands of princes like you, but there is only one Beethoven. Now, there's some truth to that, but I don't want to live with somebody that thinks that way. I don't want to be friends with somebody that thinks that way. That's the Nebuchadnezzar effect runneth amok. And so when we pray, give us this day our daily bread, really we're saying, God, we are totally dependent upon you. And he says, give us this day our our daily bread. It's every day. Lord, I, I bring it. So, so part of that is, is that we understand this is a day-by-day gift from God. Listen to Deuteronomy 8, chapter 11, or Deuteronomy 8, verse 11. God's instructions to his people says this, take care lest you forget, see, the Lord your God by not keeping his commandments and his rules 
and his statutes, which I command you today, lest when you have eaten and you are full and you build good houses and you live in them, and when your herds and flocks multiply and your silver and gold is multiplied and all that you have is multiplied, then you, your heart is lifted up and you forget the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt and out of the house of slavery. Don't forget. Later in the passage, he says this. Beware lest you say in your heart, my power and the might of my hand have gotten me this wealth, and you shall remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you power to get wealth, that he may confirm his covenant that he swore to your fathers as it is this day. And if you, if you forget, if you forget the Lord your God and go after other gods and serve them and worship them, I solemnly warn you today that you shall surely perish. So don't forget. Don't, don't be prey to the Nebuchadnezzar effect. And part of the daily bread is, is daily awareness, but also daily comfort. And one of the most well-known passages in the Bible, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, you know, don't, don't run after food and clothing because pagans run after that. But he says, but you people, he says, you followers of mine, you seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all of these things shall be added unto you. And then he says this in verse 34. He says, therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow. For tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. Don't, don't be worrisome. Don't, don't be anxious about tomorrow. See, daily bread, don't be overly constrained and filled with horrendous anxieties. Daily bread, daily trust. I was um, shopping with my wife and daughter recently in a two-hour shopping trip stretching to four and a half hours. And I was, thankfully, had a big book. But, uh, you know, you're, you get real bored. So I started, went to one shop, and there were some wall hangings. And one of them said this, always be yourself unless you can be Batman. Then be Batman. I really like that one. But the one that I want you to think about is this. This is all it says. Not to spoil the ending, but everything is going to be okay. Not, not to spoil the ending, but everything is going to be okay. And I thought only the child of the king can say that. Only because of the grace of Christ can you say that. Now, not to spoil the ending, it's going to be okay. There, when I first became a believer, there was a hymn that we sang at the first, one of the first meetings I went to, and it just kind of stuck in my mind. It's an old hymn, and it's called, I Am His and He Is Mine. I'm just read just a, a couple of things to you. Um, it goes like this. Heaven ab since I came to know Christ, heaven above is softer blue. Earth beneath is sweeter green. Something lives in every hue Christless eyes have never seen. Birds with gladder songs or flow, flowers with deeper beauties shine. Since I know, as now I know, I am his and he is mine. And what, what the writer is saying is this, is that since I've come to know Christ, I, I, the world is not the impersonal plus time plus chance are a huge mistake. There's a rhythm, there's a glory to it. Therefore, the, the, the sky is bluer. The grass is greener. The birds sing sweeter because God made the birds. There, there, there is a, a joy that I didn't know 
Then he says this. Things that once were wild alarms cannot now disturb my rest. Closed in everlasting arms, pillowed on the loving breast. I just, I just, I've always remember. Things that once were wild alarms cannot now destroy my rest. Let me tell you something. Your heavenly father is your heavenly father. And he's watching over you. And he guards you. And he guides you. And as you follow him and pursue him, he'll bless your life. Things that once were wild alarms cannot now destroy my rest. That doesn't mean we're not aware or prayerful or concerned or, or labor to, to see righteousness exalted in our culture. It doesn't mean anything. But it means that, that, that we understand that God is God. So it, w- w- daily grace. This daily bread gives us emotional health. What do you do when you don't measure up? What do you do? What do you do when the voice of conscience says, you blew it? I hear it every week, at least every week. What do you do when the voice of the adversary says, I can't believe that you said that or you thought that or that's in your past? What do you do when sudden, some sudden sin springs upon you and you go places you don't want to go in your mind or your thoughts or with your tongue? What do you do? There's a man named John Newton. You know his story. He wrote Amazing Grace, How Sweet the Sound. Poor John Newton was a slave trader before he came to Christ. He was an immoral man. He was a profligate. He was, he was a horrible man. And he came to faith in Christ. And God changed his heart, and he became a pastor. And he wrote a hymn called Amazing Grace, How Sweet the Sound. But he's got, he wrote many beautiful poems. One of them has never been put to music. It's entitled uh, The Test or something like that. But this, this is what it says. I just love this. Newton, who has every reason, whose, whose conscience, whose past would have tormented him, said this. Be thou my shield in hiding place that sheltered near thy side, I may my fierce accuser face and tell him thou hast died. Now what do you do? When your fierce accuser berates you, when the devil berates you, when your conscience disturbs you, what do you say? Jesus has died. My sins are covered. God made him who knew no sin to be sin for me. Romans 5, therefore having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. See, there's emotional health there. And it says, through him we have been offered this grace in which we now stand. And we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Tell him, thou hast died. Another manifestation of this is that we look to the Lord as the giver of all gifts. Jonathan Edwards said this. It's a great quote. Jonathan Edwards says, regarding the person of Christ and his gifts to us, our daily bread, laughter, he says, these are but shadows, but the enjoyment of God is his substance. These are but scattered beams, but God is the sun. These are but streams, but God is is the fountain. These are but drops, but God is the ocean. See, ocean. They're drops. We thank God for the drops. But listen, 
the giver is God. And when you see that, when you see grace and you see the goodness of Christ, you become a thankful person, you become a thankful person, you become a gracious soul. And listen to me, a gracious soul is easy to live with. A gracious soul is easy to parent. A gracious soul is easy to obey. A gracious soul is easy to be a neighbor with. A gracious soul is easy to be, easy to be in a community group with. And thirdly, we say that God's gifts are wonderful, but they do not profit us without the Father's blessing. They're wonderful, but they don't profit us without the Father's blessing. Good gifts. But the blessing of God must attend it. A couple of verses from the Psalm. Psalm 84, the psalmist says, For a day in your court is better than a thousand elsewhere. I'd rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than to dwell in the tents of the wicked. I'd rather be a doorkeeper, doorkeeper, the house of my God, than to dwell in the tents of the wicked. Rather be a doorkeeper, doorkeeper, because God is good. It's in Psalm 4, it says this, verse 7 and 8, you have put more joy in my heart than when their grain and new wine abound. In peace I will both lie down and sleep. For you, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. Lord, you've put more joy in my heart than, than, than when they have, when their stock portfolio comes back so good because I know you. I say, Church, I, that's what we've got to say and do and pursue. See, the problem with idols is idols just do not deliver. They promise this, but they never deliver. They promise, but they don't deliver. For example, I mean, even the very, the very best, the gold. Like this, this weekend has been a horrible sports weekend. Let's just say that loud. It has been horrible. It's just been wretched. I mean, bad sports weekend. I mean, terrible. But let's say the standard of excellence in baseball is the New York Yankees, for example. New York Yankees, whether you like them or not historically have been the team, the team. Since the, listen, since the year 2000, if you're a Yankees fan, since the year 2000, the Yankees have been in one World Series. One. That's one. And their adversaries, the hated, the despised, the despicable, the one whose name cannot be mentioned, Boston Red Sox, have won three World Series since then. It's horrible if you're a Yankees fan. If you're a Chicago Cubs fan, you haven't been in the World Series in 104 years. 104 years. The Dallas Cowboys. Now, years ago, they were called what? America's team. I mean, you talk to somebody 30 years of age and under and say, America's team. They go, what are you talking about? You know why? The Cowboys haven't been to the Super Bowl since 1996. That's ancient history for some people. 1996, and when they beat the Steelers, 27 to 17. You know, Emmitt Smith, Troy Aikman. So, so what I'm saying is even the standards of excellence don't show up. Idols promise, but they do not deliver. See, what, what we need, we see our Father who art in heaven, Abba Father, Glorious Father, God, you're good. 
And then we need to plead and pray, God, let me see your beauty so I can go hard for you. See, just, just, just not seeing the greatness of the triune God, we're not going to be compelled to go forward. Let me give you a few quotes. This is Augustine Confessions. Augustine came to faith in Christ on age, age 32, died in 430. Brilliant, brilliant, brilliant guy. But he, just a few quotes. Augustine, I love it. He says, he says you, you arouse us so that praising you may bring us joy because you have made us and drawn us to yourself and our heart is unquiet until it rests in you. See, I, he says, Lord, I, I, this, this minimal, anemic going for see that that's not going to work i've got to say loudly my heart will never be at rest until it's yoked under the lordship of jesus and later in the confessions he says this who will grant me this grace that that you should come into my heart and inebriate it overwhelm it see inebriate it so, enabling me to forget the evils that beset me and embrace you my only good my only good See, church, we need to pray, God, inebriate my heart with passion. And later he says this, he says, let me run towards this voice and seize hold of it. Not, you know, God, show me your glory. A guy named John Dunn, like John Dunn a lot. He was a, died in 1630-ish. Uh, Anglican vicar wrote some incredible poems, including Death Be Not Proud. But, but he wrote a poem entitled, Batter My Heart, Try Person to God, that speaks of this. He says this. This is the last, just the last little bit of a very small poem. He says, he says take, me to, take me to you. Imprison me, for I accept you enthrall me. Shall never be free, nor ever chaste except you ravish me. He says, I'll never be free to really go for it until I am enthralled with the glory of Jesus, the power that you bring, the, the grandeur that you are. See, my, my question is, church, are you praying that you'll be enthralled with God, the triune God who is the glorious God of the Bible, who's our redeeming Savior? Unless you ravish me, overwhelm me, I, I, I will never be chased. That, that, that's what I need. You see, a, a person that is, that is enthralled with something they think is going to give them their ultimate joy will never go for Christ. Idols don't deliver. So somebody that's enthralled with this, they're, they're always going to say, I want more and more and more and more and more and meet my need and meet my need and meet my need and meet my need. And that's why I say to people all the time in marriage, you need to be a worshiper primarily, a worshiper primarily, and then love your spouse. You need a relationship. So, so, so more and more and more and more and more. A well-known John D. Rockefeller someone was asked, when is enough enough? He says, there's never enough. A Christ worshiper says, thanks be to God for the daily gift of grace and ultimate glory and joy awaits that no man can even begin to imagine. There's a difference, huge difference. I was reading about a wedding, I've read some articles about this, a recent wedding between uh, Kim Kardashian and Kanye, 
Kanye West. I, I can't, Kanye West, very gifted man, Kanye West is. Got married, uh, and this article comes from People Magazine, so it's got to be true. And uh, I've read it in several places. What they did, they, they, they flew their wedding uh, guests, I guess, 200 of them, to Paris. And they spent a whole week partying in Paris. And they thought about renting the Palace of Versailles for their wedding. We thought about that too, but decided probably not bad thing. So, so they, they decided not to rent the Palace of Versailles. And then one of the, so they had this lavish party on a Friday night. They got up early Saturday, flew everybody to Italy, to Florence, had an incredible wedding in, in Italy and partied. And um, some, some things about it, the, the wedding coordinator was also Kim Kardashian's wedding coordinator at her second marriage and at her baby shower when she had this baby with Kanye West before they were married. So she knows Kim very well, which would really help you know, if you're a wedding coordinator. And Andre Bocelli sang at their wedding. Then I got to, that would be cool. Let's be honest. That would really be fun for Andre Bocelli to sing at your wedding. And if you don't know who he is, you should. Um, so, so anyway, one, one of the, one of the, one of the groom, one of the guests were interviewed by People Magazine. He said, he said this, it was funny how nervous Kanye was. He clearly knew the gravity of what he was about to do. And I just stopped and thought, really? Gravity? The last wedding lasted 72 days, marriage lasted 72 days. Maybe he's shooting for 73. I don't know. I mean, really, come on. And I just, I just read this and I read about, the, I could, I've read several places how much this wedding cost, ballpark. And let's just say we can build our new building twice for what they spent on this one wedding. And as I read about it, I, I wanted to weep. Because what this is saying is they're saying is we're 38 and 33. Hopefully this is going to last for a while. And we've seen 48-year-olds and 43-year-olds and 68-year-olds and 63-year-olds, and it's all downhill pretty fast after this. So we're going to make the best out of what we can for the time being right now. And this is all that we are. This is what we're about, period. And it breaks my heart. And yet many people live that way. They don't have the resources to live that way, but they say, man, this is what we're about. And what I'm saying is this, is that when Jesus said, give us this day our daily bread, he was saying, look to Abba Father. Look to the giver of good gifts. Look to the one who takes whatever he gives you and he blesses it with his power and his provision and his grace and his goodness and you rejoice in it. Look to it. And, and, then, and then the last point very quickly is, is you learn the grace of contentment. It's interesting. In Philippians 4, Paul says, I've learned the secret of being content. Hear that? I've learned it. I've learned. Are you in the school of contentment under the Lordship of Christ? He says, if you want to be content, there's a little book, I won't take time to read it, by Jeremiah Burroughs that says, if, if you're going to be content, you've got to go to Christ. You've got to live out of the mercy and the goodness of Christ. I want that. I want that for you. I want to pray, Abba, Father, give me this day my daily bread. God, I'm trusting you today. I'm going for today because I've been enthralled by the glory and goodness of Christ. You have ravished me by showing me the beauty of who Jesus is. I want that. Let's pray. Lord, we are so thankful um, for this model prayer. And so often, Lord, we don't know how to pray or what to pray, but you've told us to simply cry out to the Father, to cry out with 
tenderness and compassion and resolve that your name would be hallowed, to, to cry out and to pray that, that your kingdom would come, that you so rule in us by your word and by your spirit that, that we would truly be continually changed and that Satan's overtures be overthrown, that, that you would shine in our lives, that your will would be done on earth as it is in heaven. And then you say that we should pray, give us this day our daily bread. So God, we pray this day, whether in sickness or health, whether in sorrow or joy, whether in disappointment or glee, give us this day our daily bread. And let us know that the giver of our daily bread, as we run to you, Lord Christ, take what you give us and make it a joy. And you bless it. So we need that. Oh, God, may we be enthralled with the goodness of Christ. In whose name we pray. Amen.